How does an elephant become one of the biggest celebrities of the Victorian era? Welcome to Footnoting History, where today's topic is Jumbo the Elephant and the Keeper who loved him. Hello everyone, Christine here to talk to you about an elephant. Not just any elephant, but one who made headlines and had adoring fans in multiple countries during the mid to late 1800s. I chose this topic for May of 2017 for two reasons. One, it marks the one-year anniversary of when the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus retired their performing elephants. Two, this month, the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus will give its last performance. So, as the circus known for over a century as the greatest show on earth closes its doors, I thought it was appropriate to pay tribute to its elephant performers by looking at the life of Jumbo, arguably the most famous elephant to ever be part of the circus. Our story begins in Africa, in what is now the eastern borderland of Sudan, in the early 1860s. It was there most likely that the elephant called Jumbo, whose name origins are murky and not definitively confirmed, was born. As a baby, he was captured by elephant hunters hired by a middleman for Lorenzo Casanova, a European who wanted to import exotic animals to sell to zoos and menageries. Now, at this time, while the Asian elephant was not an extraordinary sight in Europe, an African elephant was incredibly rare. Actually, I guess you could say it was basically unheard of, unless it was a stuffed version. If you're ever pressed to tell them apart, here's a little tip. An African elephant usually has much larger ears than its Asian counterpart. Some people even say that the ears of the African elephant are shaped like the continent of Africa. Anyway, by the early 1860s, European zoos wanted to expand beyond the Asian elephant to the African one. This leads us to Jumbo. Jumbo did not live up to his name at the time of his capture. He was a tiny runt who wasn't expected to live very long. It's rather remarkable, in all honesty, that he made it to Europe still breathing, because he had a lack of proper nutrition since he was separated from his mother at such a young age. Jumbo came to Europe as part of a large caravan that included an assortment of other animals. The animals crossed the desert, the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and came up through Italy before reaching Casanova's headquarters in Dresden. By this time, many of the animals had, well, they had passed because the journey was arduous. But Jumbo survived, and he arrived in Dresden, ready to be sold. Casanova didn't keep Jumbo for long. He was sold into a traveling menagerie, and soon after that, sold again. The second time, he was sold into the Jardin des Plantes in Paris, one of Europe's most famous zoos at this time. You would think that this would be the moment where his fame began. Here he was, the sought-after African elephant, living and breathing in Europe. But what happened instead was, well, not very much at all. Jumbo was introduced into the menagerie with very little fanfare, perhaps because he was still an unimpressive, malnourished baby. Jumbo didn't thrive in Paris, and the fact that the zoo managers were on an animal buying spree, really, it didn't help matters. The zoo's overcrowding grew increasingly worse, and the new acquisitions included two more African elephants. This was a pair of calves, one male and one female, 
named Castor and Pollux. The conditions at the Parisian Zoo were so terrible that in 1865, about two years into Jumbo's time there, the French government, currently under the rule of Napoleon III, did an inquiry into the zoo's facilities and declared that it lacked sufficient space, light, food, and medical treatment for the animals. So you can imagine what Jumbo was probably experiencing. The solution was to try and lighten the burden by selling some of the larger animals. Now, this was music to the ears of one man. Abraham Bartlett, the superintendent of the zoological garden run by the Zoological Society of London at Regent's Park in England. He had desperately been seeking an African elephant for some time. So as soon as he got word, he entered into negotiations and it was soon determined that he could receive one of the three African elephants currently in Paris. Of course, the Paris contingent wasn't going to part with Castor and Pollux because they could possibly breed together in the future and the public already liked them. They decided it would be their other African elephant, our Jumbo, who was listless and of no use to them. And so Jumbo bid farewell to his unhappy French home in June of 1865. To accompany him on his trip to London, the zoo sent Matthew Scott, an assistant keeper with no real elephant-carrying experience. Scott would eventually write a brief autobiography, which I've put a link to on the Footnoting History website in case anybody wants to read it. He was born in 1834 to a very large family that lived on the lands of the Earl of Derby and served that family. At the age of 10, he was put to work with the birds in the Earl's menagerie, and after several years, he was moved to work with animals like antelopes. This would eventually lead him to the zoo in London because when the Earl died, many of his animals were taken by the Zoological Society and due to Scott's remarkable abilities with them, he went too. By the time he came into contact with Jumbo, he had lived and worked at the zoo for over a decade. Scott was, by all accounts, way, way more comfortable with animals than with people. He believed that a person, quote, cannot truly love a pet or gain its affection unless you sacrifice something for it. If that quote tells us anything, it's that when Scott, an adorer of animals, went to France and met Jumbo, he was bound to be appalled. He later described Jumbo as filthy, sick, and deplorable, with sores that looked like leprosy. As soon as Scott got his new charge to London, he set about trying to cure all his ailments. Getting Jumbo to be healthy turned out to be quite the task, but Scott refused to leave his side until it was accomplished. The approximately five-year-old elephant needed constant care, provided by both Scott and Abraham Bartlett. They had to do things like scrape and tend to his rotten feet until they were restored to their natural shape. And Jumbo's recuperation took several months. For Jumbo, an old giraffe house was transformed into a new African elephant den. But Jumbo was not fond of confinement. Bartlett had no problem with giving Jumbo a thrashing in order to get him to be submissive and accept his new home, but Scott very vocally did not agree with physically punishing animals. The two men would never see eye to eye over Jumbo's care, and as the years progressed, it would become increasingly obvious that Bartlett's greater concern was the zoo's success, while Scott only had eyes for Jumbo. Anyway, it was not long before Jumbo had company. This company was Alice, a young female African elephant believed to be from the same area as Jumbo. 
The zoo would eventually introduce her to the world as Jumbo's wife, which the newspapers and the public seriously enjoyed. By early 1866, though, Jumbo was finally ready to meet the public. And as the weather grew warmer and the crowds increased, Jumbo was able to adjust to the number of people who wanted to see him. With a life that involved hanging out in his outdoor enclosure and taking walks around the zoo, Jumbo was pretty content by day. But he was regularly restless and annoyed when shut inside his stable at night. Still, as Jumbo and his popularity grew, Bartlett decided that it would be a good idea to have him start giving rides to the public. And of course, because he had no choice, Jumbo eventually began to do this. In 1867, at which point he was probably about seven feet tall, he was carrying several adults and or children in a specially made contraption attached to his back, with Scott leading him or riding on his neck. The pair became well-loved by the zoo-visiting populace. Still, as much as the keeper was besod with his charge, it seemed that Jumbo was not as attached to him. That is, until that winter, when Jumbo fell ill. He grew feverish and lost all of his energy, something which made those in charge of the zoo wonder if it was already the end of the line for their prized elephant. Yet Scott once again stepped up. He believed he could help Jumbo, and it was noticed by all that by the time Jumbo recovered, after intense round-the-clock attention from Scott, and possibly a few sips of whiskey now and then, that the elephant became completely besotted with him, too. Jumbo's moods and displeasures faded away, and instead he showed love and devotion for the keeper. Eventually, Jumbo outgrew his den, causing the zoo to build a new elephant house, one that had a really large bathing pool. But, much like with the first den, Jumbo didn't initially like it. He threw a fit that caused damage to his tusks, which is why, if you see any photographs or drawings of him, you'll notice that his tusks are never particularly long. Once Jumbo adjusted to his new home, his life became a rather predictable pattern of walking the zoo giving rides, hanging about in the enclosures, and playing in the bathing pools with Alice. He developed a love of music, especially from the army bands that played around the zoo, and he liked to trumpet along with them. He also liked to play jokes on Scott, stealing his hat and showing the public, and also Bartlett, that Scott was the only person he cared about. Bartlett was not a fan of Scott's monopoly on Jumbo, or the celebrity that he enjoyed at Jumbo's side. By the early 1880s, he insisted that Scott take on a co-keeper. But mysteriously, each keeper he hired was scared off by Jumbo after a short period of time. In 1881, though, something changed. Jumbo grew very violent and unpredictable. Even though he would be fine during the day, at night he would rail against the elephant house on rampages that even Scott could not stop or prevent. The conclusion was made that Jumbo was probably entering must a period in a male elephant's life when he is known to basically go into an uncontrollable frenzy. It's a perfectly normal thing for a sexually mature male elephant to experience, but in the confines of a zoo, it caused massive worry. Sure, his normal personality would return, but then the must would return again too. Luckily for Bartlett, the solution to his problem presented itself at just the right time. At this very moment in America extravagant showman P.T. Barnum was looking for a new attraction for his circus. 
He was currently partners with James Bailey and James Hutchinson, and their combined endeavor was commonly called the greatest show on earth. They became aware of Jumbo through a traveling agent, and despite already owning many elephants, an offer was made for this gigantic, famous elephant from the London Zoo. As 1882 began, word spread that Jumbo was purchased and moving to the United States. Bartlett thought his troubles were solved. He was about to rid himself of the problematic elephant, and he had arranged for Scott to accompany Jumbo across the ocean and help him settle into his new home. There was one problem, though. No one wanted Jumbo to go. Least of all, it appeared, Jumbo himself. This caused a huge headache for both the old and new owners. In order to get Jumbo to America, he was to be confined in a specially created box or crate. And it was one huge crate. It had to hold an 11-foot-tall African elephant weighing several tons. Only, when the day came that Jumbo was supposed to go into the crate to be taken to a ship to go to America, he flat-out refused, in front of visitors to the zoo. The attempt failed. Then, another attempt failed. This time, trying to walk Jumbo to the docks, he caught on to what was happening, refused to leave the zoo. Alice was heard lamenting his leaving and Jumbo plopped down on the ground in protest until the idea of moving him that day was abandoned. The press then, of course, took up the cause. Newspapers covered Jumbo's refusal to leave. People called for the public to purchase him in the Victorian equivalent of crowdfunding because they wanted to prevent Jumbo from leaving London. They inundated the zoo with letters asking for the sale of Jumbo to Barnum Circus to be undone. The Jumbo craze caused the number of people visiting the zoo to skyrocket to record numbers, and there was even a lawsuit in the middle of it all. Nevertheless, attempts at getting Jumbo to take to his crate continued and continued to fail, and the tensions were running high. Finally, at the end of March, drastic measures were taken. By this point, one of Barnum's men had begun to suspect that Jumbo's refusals to enter the crate were the result of Matthew Scott telling him what to do. He brought this to Bartlett's attention, and a series of threats were employed to force Scott into sorting the situation. Miraculously, or perhaps not, on the next attempt, which the RSPCA, that is the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, attended, Jumbo got into the box and was successfully transported onto the ship the Assyrian Monarch. Jumbo arrived in New York in early April 1882 and was greeted in true celebrity fashion. American newspapers like the New York Herald had been covering the trials and tribulations of Jumbo's purchase for some time. Press and VIPs were all on hand for his grand arrival and his transfer to Madison Square Garden, where the circus was currently residing. The crowds who filled New York streets to see Jumbo get moved in his box from the docks to the garden were estimated at around 10,000. As excited as the Americans were to greet their new star, no one was happier about Jumbo's arrival than the elephant himself. When his crate was open after long weeks of confinement and travel, Jumbo hesitantly exited with Scott's guidance. But then he rolled onto the ground for a few minutes, waving his trunks and legs. Obviously, the onlookers deduced, Jumbo really wanted to stretch himself out now that he was allowed out of the crate. Once he was done, he was taken to the elephant quarters, introduced to the other elephants in the menagerie, and welcomed into circus life. Now, life in the United States was different from life in the London Zoo. It involved partaking in the parades of circus animals. 
Jumbo was predominantly used for show, to walk around and be impressive, as opposed to perform and do tricks. But it also meant regular traveling. The circus followed a circuit each year that began in New York, then moved throughout the eastern half of the U.S. and into Canada, then retired for the colder months to its winter quarters in Bridgeport, Connecticut, only to, of course, then begin the circuit again the following spring. Jumbo, who you'll remember, didn't really like being confined, also did not like trains, although he and Scott had their own personal car. Often, according to the keeper, he would be woken up by Jumbo's trunk exploring his face to make sure he remained close by. Another change from London life was that Scott didn't have complete control over Jumbo anymore. The main trainer, who believed in using a hook to prod the animals into submission, had the power to override Scott, and often that meant Jumbo having chains on his legs. This, in particular, really bothered Scott, who wrote that Jumbo, quote, like all other creatures, prefers his liberty, and is much happier, as well as healthier, when at large. He further noticed that Jumbo slept better when loose and was able to exercise himself. But it wasn't him who was giving the orders. So it was that Jumbo and Scott settled into the arduous routine of circus life. It wasn't long before Jumbo was featured on all the posters, attendance was rising, and his likeness was used to sell all sorts of products from Pine State Java to Clark's spool cotton. The name Jumbo became used in American slang with increasing frequency, and it began to mean anything that was incredibly large. Perhaps Jumbo's most remarkable appearance on behalf of the circus came in May of 1884 in New York. One year earlier, the Brooklyn Bridge, which spans across the East River from Lower Manhattan to Brooklyn, had opened. But people were not convinced of the safety of the bridge. So Barnum was asked to have Jumbo walk across the bridge to show its stability. Scott didn't want to do it. He was worried that if Jumbo balked, all sorts of horrors could occur. Still, what Barnum said went, and it wasn't just Jumbo who crossed the Brooklyn Bridge. It was Jumbo, along with a group of other elephants and camels. As they hoped, crowds amassed. Scott said that Jumbo knew exactly what was happening, as he had stayed up the night before explaining it to him. According to the keeper, as they crossed the bridge, Jumbo was very interested in what was going on around him. But each step he took caused a large vibration. Scott's relief was immense when the event was pulled off with Jumbo being in good humor and the bridge not collapsing. He would unfortunately later learn that a young girl had lost her life by falling from a window in an attempt to catch a glimpse of the animal parade, something which was very upsetting. But, in terms of Jumbo's behavior and the reaction from the press and general public, everything went very well. The New York Times reported that England's old pet Jumbo and the mighty name of Barnum added a new luster to the bridge, in an event that seemed like the emptying of Noah's Ark onto Long Island. Indeed, for the general public, it must have been quite the visual. Following the Brooklyn Bridge spectacle, things largely settled down again for Jumbo and Scott. They spent their traditional time in the winter quarters, during which Scott wrote his autobiography, and then took off with the circus yet again at the start of 1885. Things ticked along as usual until September 15th, when the circus was in St. Thomas, Ontario, Canada. That night, the circus had completed its performance and was packing up to move on to another town. Because there were no trains scheduled to come by on the tracks surrounding the performing area, the decision was made to walk the equipment and the larger animals along the tracks to the waiting circus trains. 
As it happened, two of the last animals to make the walk were Jumbo and his tiny fellow elephant, Tom Thumb. During the last part of the walk, it became clear that freight trains were still using the tracks to go through the town, because Scott heard and then saw one barreling toward them. Unfortunately, though the train's driver did see them, it was impossible for him to stop in time. Tom Thumb was struck first and tossed from the tracks by the impact, which somehow managed to save his life. But Jumbo was not so fortunate. When the collision ended, Scott managed to get to his best friend, only to comfort him as he breathed his last. The keeper was absolutely inconsolable, and the circus workers were in shock. It took over half an hour to remove Jumbo from the tracks, and then Scott kept a vigil by his side all night. A photographer arrived and captured the aftermath, and the number of onlookers grew. This event was not only a horrible end for a much-loved elephant, but also an insurmountable blow to Matthew Scott. He had rarely spent more than a few hours away from Jumbo's side since 1865. The newspapers were quick to cover Jumbo's death and offer tribute to him, but the personal toll on Matthew Scott was so obvious that even Barnum commented on it. He said, Poor Scott! I don't know what he'll do without Jumbo. He cares nothing for human companionship. Jumbo was the world to him. The affection manifested between him and the elephant was simply wonderful. Yet, even Jumbo's tragic death did not mark the end of his career. Barnum and his associates immediately set about turning the event into something that would favor the circus. As far as Barnum was concerned, there was a new tale to be released. This fabricated version was far more spectacular than what actually happened. In this rendition, Jumbo had realized that Tom Thumb was in danger and saved him by flinging him from the tracks, then was unable to also save himself. Jumbo, the grandest elephant in North America, had died a hero and a martyr. It did not take long for this false and fantastical story to be presented as true by the press. It also did not take long before Barnum enacted a plan that would allow him to continue to capitalize on Jumbo. First, he had a taxidermist prepare Jumbo's body, resulting in both a stuffed version of Jumbo and a separate reconstruction of his skeleton. Then, he contacted the London Zoo and purchased Alice, who you'll remember was known as Jumbo's wife. Once Alice arrived in the States, she was reunited, if you can use that word, with Jumbo's stuffed version. She wasn't fooled, though, it would seem, because apparently she approached him, stroked him with her trunk, and then turned away from him, twice. But that didn't matter, because the ability to publicize the reunion was the important part. So Jumbo's career continued. His stuffed version was brought on the circus's tour, accompanied not just by Alice, but by Matthew Scott as well. His job was to stand with Jumbo's remains and talk about his life as the elephant's keeper. Jumbo's skeleton now even made it onto circus posters, and Barnum remarked to the New York Times that if he could not have Jumbo living, he would have him dead because he was still worth more than a small herd of ordinary living elephants. Unfortunately, Scott did not recover from the death of his beloved Jumbo, and his attitude suffered because of it. At the end of the 1886 season, Scott was let go. However, it seems he was still unable to leave Jumbo. There were several reports of Scott coming into the winter quarters, going to where Jumbo had been stored for the off-season, and talking to him. In 1887, Scott was recorded in the papers as having given a deposition in a lawsuit that the circus filed against the railway over Jumbo's death. Shortly after this, he faded from historical record. 
but it was rumored that he lived, not very well, off of the sales of his autobiography and never got over the loss of his best friend. As for Jumbo, eventually his skeleton was donated to New York's Museum of Natural History. His stuffed version was given to Tufts College, which is now called Tufts University. It's in Massachusetts, and it's where Barnum had started a museum. Jumbo's body was embraced by the Tufts community. For over 80 years, he stood tall, being touched for luck on a regular basis, particularly by the sports community. However, in the 1970s, a fire destroyed Jumbo. All that remains now is his tail and a jar of his ashes that is still touched by the athletic community for luck. These are not the only monuments to Jumbo, as both Tufts and St. Thomas have statues to honor him. And of course, there is perhaps the greatest tribute that even today people still describe large, impressive things as Jumbo. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.